Ever since she was a child, Alicia Hayes has been fascinated by technology as a tool for engagement. The assistant professor in UNT's Department of Learning Technologies was drawn to games like Oregon Trail and Miss Pac-Man. And before she was even a teenager, she began designing her own games. As a researcher and director of the Surge Lab at UNT, her world is an innovative playground focused on human-computer interaction in areas such as virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, and extended reality. And I'm particularly interested in measuring whether or not they do what they claim to do. So if someone says technology is to connect, then I'm looking to see if it actually is connecting people. If someone says that the technology is to teach you about physics, then I'm interested in knowing if people learn from that technology, learn physics, or if they learn more from a book or a magazine or a podcast. <laughs> She's also interested in expanding and diversifying STEM education and the STEM workforce which led her to create the Girls Surge into STEM XR camp that launched this summer. The camp aims to introduce underrepresented female students in Fort Worth ISD to emerging technology tools used for STEM education. The camp, which will once again be hosted in summer 2022, introduces the students to STEM careers and diverse STEM professionals in biology, chemistry, anthropology, computer science, and engineering. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Cristales, as I speak with Dr. Hayes about her cutting-edge research, her commitment to diversity and inclusion, and how a Christmas wish for an Atari jump-started her entire career. You're an expert in, in virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, and extended reality. And, you know, I feel like a lot of us hear those terms and sort of assume they're interchangeable in a lot of ways. What would be your kind of dinner party explanation of the differences between them? Oh, that is a great question. And I love answering this question. It's one of my soapboxes, actually. <laughs> So augmented reality is the thing that probably most people have used at this point. Um, if you use Snapchat filters, when they overlay virtual objects on real objects, that is augmented reality. So Snapchat filters would be considered augmented reality. So as Pokemon Go for the time that, that was a craze for everyone going around catching Pokemon on their phone and being able to look with the camera and um, see virtual Pokemon overlaid in your actual real world environment. You can catch a Pokemon maybe in your kitchen. Now, uh, mixed reality is um, kind of more uh, nebulous, we'll say. And mixed reality is really when you mix virtual objects with real objects, it's not the same as augmented reality because my favorite example of mixed reality is when you yourself as a human become a controller. So um, when we use something like the Microsoft Connect and we can move around in virtual space because we're moving within, within the Microsoft Connect vision, that um, would be an example of mixed reality. And then of course, virtual reality has different levels. Uh, and for me, probably the most common that people have experienced is 360 video and the Google Cardboard. 
but I am a fan of more immersive interactive virtual reality that lets you interact with objects, pick things up, put them down, move around. You can transform into other things. Um, there is a lot of research on the fact that it doesn't take our brains very long to move in different ways if we're taught, for instance, to be an octopus. <laughs> we can figure out how to somehow control with our own bodies all eight legs of an octopus, even though we only have these four appendages. So um, virtual reality, highly immersive interactive virtual reality is my favorite when done well. I also, um, like I said, I research whether or not things do what they say they're going to do. I'm not a fan of when people just throw stuff into VR just because, oh, that would be, that would be cool in VR. So my question is always, but why? I think that we should do VR if we're creating something that is too expensive to do in real life or prohibitive to do in real life. Like right now, I guess VR chat because we can't go and talk to people as easily. <laughs> so that's prohibited in real life um, or dangerous in real life. Or if you're creating uh, some, some kind of standardized experience. And then of course with VR, then there's just fantastic if you want to experience the fantastic, which I guess is kind of prohibited in the real world. So um, if it doesn't meet those criteria, then I kind of shy away from it. Can you talk about what first sparked your interest in this cross-section of technology and learning and gaming that has become so prevalent now for both recreational and educational purposes? A funny and happy and sad story. <laughs> That's a good ending. Um, so when I was seven, which tells you how, how old I am, um, when I was seven, my best friend had an Atari and I used to go over to her house and she would play Frogger and Miss Pac-Man. And she would like, we would take turns playing, of course, because she's a nice person, but because she was so good because she owned the Atari and played all the time, she would like be Miss Pac-Man for like what felt like a year, but I imagine like eight to 10 minutes. And then when she dies, she can't need a controller. And I would die like immediately, right? Like I'm dying like every like 25 seconds or something. So I asked my parents, I'm like, I want an Atari. I want an Atari for Christmas. So for Christmas, I open up my Christmas present and to my joy and chagrin, I got a computer for Christmas. One of those little Radio Shack Commodore 64 computers. And my parents said, if you want to make games or if you want to play games, you can make them. And I was like, no, <laughs> but I was an only child. And so I didn't have anything else to do. So I started kind of messing around with the computer and making games and learning about computer science. So I guess I can thank my parents for this. And I can also thank Jessica for and her parents for having an Atari that got me to know that I was a serious gamer. And also um, my parents for making me realize that if I wanted to have a game, I was gonna have to make it. Which I guess now translates because a lot of times I imagine games I'd like to see and I'm like, ooh, we should make that in a lab. So yes, it's a happy story and a sad story, but a great ending and thanks to my parents. <laughs> When do you remember the first game that you created on that computer? Oh my gosh, these, <laughs> they're so bad. They're so bad. It's like, they're not even really games. It's like, you, you can make the screen change colors or like if you hit a ball on the wall, you can make 
and like so kind of like baby pong <laughs> but I, it was just like the sense that i was a computer person now right like and at the time because of how old i am at the time it was like there are not that many people who are like actual computer people now like everyone is like oh all of the kids they're all techies because they all know how to operate a cell phone which i have a soapbox about that but i won't start right now but um but like having that sense of and actually this translates to the camps too the sense of self-efficacy for me to feel confident with technology I remember my mom saying once she was so proud of me because I realized that I wasn't going to break the computer which I thought was the coolest thing like or actually I thought it was the oddest thing when she said it but now I think it's the coolest thing because it's so true it's like if you get the sense that you can just use this thing this toy and explore it and you don't have any fear then you can do all kinds of things well so you attended Purdue as an undergraduate and you initially were a computer science major but then switched to psychology and ended up earning a bachelor's in professional communications and psychology is that right um yeah well so I I I started at Purdue a satellite of Purdue Purdue Fort Wayne I started at Purdue Fort Wayne in computer science, and I um, went through most of the degree programs. So I did get certificates and, and you know an associate's degree. But uh, when I was almost done with the program, I was also minoring in psychology because I thought that was fascinating. I got a job um, at an aerospace company doing the Y2K changes. So they put a bunch of low-level computer scientists and the job of going through and looking for two digit years, which were coded YY and changing that YY to YYYY. So there would be four digit years. So when I had this job changing, <laughs> changing two, two digit dates to four digit dates, I said, this is not the field for me. And I was paid quite well. This was in obviously the year 2000 and I was a student and I was paid $15 an hour, which is a good amount for a student now but in 2000 that was literally 21 years ago oh my gosh in 2000 that was a lot of money to be making as a student and I just I couldn't stand the job <laughs> so so after a while I um it was an internship and um I got the credits for the internship and then I changed my major <laughs> because I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life and um I hadn't had any conversations with people about the fact that that's a teeny tiny blip in history that you will never do that job again, first of all, but also there's so many things that you can do with computer science. Like that now when I talk to people, I'm like, computer science is a tool. Uh, it's a door to enter any field that you want. Like once you have this toolbox, you can go to anyone and say, I am a computer scientist and I can do these things. And they'll say, oh, cool. Can you help me with this thing? Because computers are pervasive in all of the high level work that we do. Um, so it's a, another kind of happy, sad story because that story ends with me getting my PhD in modeling and simulation and going back and teaching in that same department that I withdrew from. <laughs> So I'm back teaching before I came to UNT, I was back teaching in that department, um, the classes that I had taken and classes I hadn't even gotten to um, and telling students like my journey and about the fact that 
this is a toolbox. Like, so I, I've met many entry level students and pulled them into computer science because they're like, oh, I don't know if I really like it. And I'm like, you don't have to love computer science. You have to love computer science as a tool. Love, love the fact that you can do data analysis. Love the fact that you can build games. Love the fact that you can build websites. Love the fact that you can build companies. Love those things. And then use this as the foundation. You don't have to love English to speak it well. <laughs> you know, I'm wondering too how that combination of, and, and you know, you mentioned using computer science as a tool, but I'm wondering how that combination of computer science and psychology helps you when it comes to, say, user experience and evaluating that. You asked that question and it opens like a whole Pandora's box in my mind about my journey. And one thing that I found really interesting, I, I've been a professional for, for decades now. And when I was a computer science professional doing more coding, like actually, like now I do design and, 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 and students do the coding for me. But when I was actually coding, when I took um, the Myers-Briggs personality test, my Myers-Briggs personality test came out different than it does now. So at the time when I was coding, um, I think I was an ENTJ, which T is thinking. And now I'm an ENFJ, which is feeling. So, so when I was more a linear thinker, because I had to be for, for coding, um, it, it really did change the way that I look at things. And I, I kind of feel like I can switch back and forth between being a linear thinker and looking at the whole picture. And also like the uh, psychology and communication help because I, I, like I said, I research human computer interaction. So I wanna know how someone interprets a, an experience that, they're, that, that I've created or that our team has created or some other team has created. Uh, but I also wanna know what the problems are. So another, another thing that you do with um, user experience testing is just watching people, uh, watching them with an, an interface and noting what they're doing. One of the things that the, um, one of the biggest UX researchers tells you to do is just watch people when you create an experience and then take notes. So it's like, oh, oh, you have a sticky note up here reminding you of the steps. You shouldn't have to have a sticky note up here reminding you of the steps because I should have designed it well enough that steps are easily memorable. Like that is that is one of the guidelines of user experience design is like things should be memorable. They should be easy to learn. They should be aesthetically pleasing. Um, when appropriate, they should be fun. Like these things are things that are, that we've been teaching computer science students for years and very frequently we teach it at the end and, they, and the people who are really hardcore, like I love coding, which I'm not one of those people, but the, the I love coding people will come into my class and they'll say like, what are we making? And I'm like, ah, cool, wait. First, who are we making it for and why? And they're like, oh, Dr. Hayes, you're no fun. And I'm like, ah, you think I'm no fun. But the truth is, if you're going to spend all semester making a thing, don't you want people to actually use it? And 
maybe have some ideation in the future of making a lot of money from the things you make. You know how you make a lot of money from the things you make? It's people using them and then continue, continuing to use them over and over again and mass adoption, a thing that one person will pay a dollar for if a million people need it, guess how many dollars you made? If you design things well, that could be in your future. If you design things poorly, it will be in the app store at the bottom of the list and seven people will download it and four of them will be your family. So one of your current research projects is called Greenland Melting, um, which examines if using virtual reality to teach people about climate change is more effective than just letting them watch a video on a screen. What has this project revealed when it comes to that question? Oh, so this is an interesting area. Um, and the, the project Greenland Melting, I'm, I'm doing in um, collaboration with a friend and fellow researcher at USC and working with Frontline. It's to examine whether 360 video and a headset is more effective than 360 video on a flat screen to teach people about the effects of global warming. And what we're finding um, is a couple of things. Uh, one of the things though is, is that the 360 flat screen video is uh, people learn more from it. Like they remember more from that video. But the thing we don't know and the thing we really want to know is how does this immersive experience where you can look around and look up and down and actually really feel like you're there and that is the sense of presence that we talk about so much in virtual reality. I probably should have explained that when I defined virtual reality because that's the biggest thing in virtual reality is that you get to feel like you're there in a space that's not here. And what we were hoping was that you learn more, but we found that that's not the case, but then that's not really a, an answer, right? That's an incomplete answer. What we're trying to define is what are the actual affordances of learning that happen in VR? If I can learn more, if you hand me a pack of flashcards, I'm going to learn those facts faster than the video too. But I think I care more from watching the video than ha being handed a stack of flashcards. And I think I care even more and feel connected to the topic even more if I've experienced it in virtual reality. But how do we define that and how do we know for sure that that has the impact. I think also um, one of the things that we wanna do long-term and this study is not going to do that is look long-term because also maybe the experience of caring about Greenland melting will last for years and being handed some flashcards will last for five minutes and be, maybe watching the video lasts for you know a week. I don't know, I don't know. Um, and of course, like I said, I am a fan of using virtual reality when it's effective. So if we find that this kind of thing is not effective, then I, I would say I would abandon it, but really I would redesign it. Well, you're, you're also working on a project that deals with equal representation when it co comes to avatars. Um, so students essentially being able to see themselves reflected in the digital characters they can choose when using technology can you talk about the importance of providing this kind of representation and what you've discovered in your research so far? So, um, yeah, 
so far in my research, I've basically just done literature review and then kind of surveying people about their attitudes about this. And what I have found, and, and, and then of course my own reflections, uh, and what I have found is so many people um, having kind of a cry for uh, representation in, in VR and in gaming. When you see people advocating for diversity and representation, you also very frequently see people um, saying, we don't need diversity, it's fine the way it is. <laughs> so so that's that's been an interesting challenge. And I say that to transition to the uh, first paper that I wrote about the importance of diversity and representation for avatars and training uh, virtual experiences. The paper was accepted to a journal, but one of the reviewers said that they thought that this, this topic was irrelevant, but other reviewers thought it was relevant. And I thought how telling that even in the field of academia where this and research, where this is, I thought, almost an obvious low-hanging fruit kind of research area that there's still apparently some controversy about whether or not representation matters. And when we, but luckily um, there have been other researchers before me who have been doing, doing this kind of um, inquiry. And what some people have found already is that people have a tendency to like people more when they have affinity to them. We have found that to be true in social science research for decades now, but we've also found it to be true now in virtual um, reality experiences. They also have found that people trust people that they find affinity with. And when I say affinity, it might be race, it might be gender, might be age, all of those things are, are kind of salient when people are evaluating whether or not they can feel connected to someone else. Um, and then uh, beyond trusting them more, people have a higher level of satisfaction with people when they have a sense of affinity to them. And that was just me measured generically, not based on race or ethnicity, but just like, uh, I like this person and I feel close to them. And also I feel like I can learn a lot from them. So what I wanna know is how these factors interplay so that if you um, have someone who is your same race and gender as a teacher, how that impacts you. Now there are of course lots of different biases that can impact the outcome of this research. Um, because people have biases against their own gender frequently, and people have biases against their own race frequently. And sometimes people may have a bias, let's say you're 19, maybe you want to be taught by someone who's 32 and feels like someone you can look up to, not someone who's in your peer group. Or maybe you'd rather be taught by a genius peer who feels like a mirror image of you. These are things that we can have hypotheses about, but we don't know. Well, speaking of representation, you started a pilot program this summer for the Girls Surgeon to STEM XR Camp, which is focused on introducing underrepresented girls in grades 6 through 12 to the STEM field and also to topics such as design thinking. I'm wondering how the idea for the camp originally came about and what were some of the things that you learned from that experience this July? I've actually been thinking about ways to bridge the gap between um, the people that you see in computer science and the people who should be in computer science. 
for the last 15 or 20 years. And I've, I've been thinking about even before, like my kids are, are teenagers and before they were born, I remember having conversations about when I have kids, these are the things I'm going to do. And I expected to have, have some level of financial stability where I could do things like pay them <laughs> to do smart, smart people things, right? <laughs> so pay them to like, like my mom, my mom used to pay me to, with, with candy because we didn't have money like that. But my mom used to pay me with candy to write pages of dictionary words. So I would fill a page with dictionary words and their definition, give it to her, and she would give me a candy bar. And that was great. So I thought, well, when I have money and I, when I have kids and I have money, I'm going to pay them to do stuff like that. And also to like work on websites or whatever I can get them to do. And, and then it occurred to me how unfair this world is in that way that I have to be someone with some level of affluence to be able to give the kids what I think they need to stay encouraged and motivated. And this camp is just one iteration of many of the thoughts I've had where I'm like, how do I give kids what I needed? I think, like I said earlier, and also how do I give kids what I wanna give my kids so that we all have these opportunities. And then when, um, as we see this strange shift and the rates of graduation uh, from college, uh, educational attainment in college, for women rising and even in some cases being greater than, than for men, but we're still not seeing a shift in the pay gap. We're not seeing that same shift in the pay gap between men and women or and women being on boards of companies or people of color being on boards of companies, things like that. We're still not seeing that shift. And, and then you listen to what the corporations are saying and they're saying, well, we're not finding the qualified people we would love to diversify, but we don't see the qualified people. So I'm saying, well, um, I can't change what your HR practices, but I can have some influence on some set of young women and people of color, um, because like I have aspirations to do this kind of camp for lots and lots of people. I can make sure that there are some people that I influence so that they can be more likely to shift these other things that matter, these needles like uh, the wealth disparity and also the, uh, I guess, level of power and corporation disparity. And then um, I believe in work smarter, not harder. So the thing I'm most proud of with the design of the summer camp is the fact that I have kind of scaffolded it. So I have, undergraduate students helping me run the camp. And those undergrad students are mentoring high school students. Then we have a second iteration of the camp where the high school students will be offered stipends, which is part of what the AAUW, the American Association of University Women, part of what they funded me for was to provide stipends to these high school girls to come back and mentor middle school young women. And we're focusing um, in Fort Worth because they're are so many schools that have such um, such a disparity. There's a there's a there's a big gap between the highest performing and lowest performing schools in Fort Worth. 
And while I can't influence that at this point in my career, my, my look as a control is still kind of small. I can influence these young women and not just influence them and hopefully increase their self-efficacy and sense of agency in the field of STEM, but also show them what mentoring is like by bringing these professionals in to mentor them and the college students to mentor them, but also empower them to mentor. Not just you can be a mentor, but you are a mentor. Well, in, in terms of the evolution of the STEM field, you know, for, for years, we've been talking about technology, increasing our connection with others. And, you know, of course it has proved vital, especially during the pandemic. But I'm wondering if you have found that technology is deepening human connection or do you feel it's making it somewhat more superficial? I literally had a colleague call me the other day because I tweeted and it was, you know, sometimes you tweet things and no one says anything, but I tweeted something to the effect of, um, we live in a world that is arguably the most technologically advanced ever, but yet we are also more isolated and disconnected than ever. And this, and my colleague called like, are you okay? Like, are you feeling isolated and disconnected? And I'm like, I mean, no more than everyone else. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, um, I think it's, I used to have this, because remember I have a, a master's in communication. And so um, I've had this conversation with many people and I, I've shifted a bit. Uh, I used to think that face-to-face -face was the uh, gold standard for communication. And I do still largely believe that, but remember I also study mixed and augmented reality. So in my mind now I'm like, you know, face-to-face -face augmented with support tools would be really the gold standard for, so like if, if um, and, and you know, I think I've told you, I do social presence research where I look at the way that people are connected and I look at the behaviors that they have that indicate that they're connected and like, and, and, and try to track those and tally them and, and um, trying to get NSF funding to automate this process. But uh, I, I think that along the lines of that, when I say that you can see behaviors that people are doing that are, that are showing that they're engaged or disengaged, wouldn't it be cool if there were some kind of system that could alert you to those kinds of things? Or the other thing, like this, this tracking system that I imagine building where you can um, like measure like, oh, like during your conversation, both of you were like 78% or whatever, like, like A plus engaged with one another in the conversation. And also, uh, wouldn't it be also cool if you could say something like talk ratio? you guys talked an equivalent amount of time. I mean, I imagine I'm talking a lot more on this because it's an interview, but like if this were like a normal, normal conversation then having like a balance interplay between, and wouldn't it be cool if the system, if you, if you had maybe alerted the system to the fact that you kind of have a tendency to monopolize a conversation, maybe if it could remind you like you've been talking for three minutes and they haven't said anything, you should probably ask a question or pause or something like that. And they're like, people have conversations and like 120 characters is the limit. And I'm a big fan of brevity. Like I also recently tweeted TLDR, too long, didn't read. I need people to stop sending me long emails. But also, 
120 characters is not long enough. And I think now they've increased it to like double that 240 characters or something. But it's still not enough when you're talking about the fact that people are getting in like seriously deep conversations, like people are having arguments about Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and things like this, and like little tweets where you can't see facial expressions. I can't tell, were you like, was that a sarcastic comment? Were you like being rude? Were you, were you being ironic? Like you don't know any of these things. So I, I think that, um, in some ways, the technologies that we're using, and clearly we've seen this even with elections, are detrimental to human interaction. But I think if we approach this with intention, with intentionality, just like we teach kids about how to be polite and face-to-face -face communication, we could have like digital literacy where we actually interact in healthy ways that are good for civic engagement. And I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not sure who's researching it, but hopefully there are people researching it. After I get tenure, I can add that to my research agenda. But first, first tenure. <laughs>